0: Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Deanna Rayburn about her latest novel, An Impossible Imposter. Deanna Rayburn is the author of two best-selling series featuring Lady Julia Gray and Veronica Speedwell, as well as other novels and novellas. An Impossible Imposter is the seventh book featuring Veronica Speedwell, and we get a clear sense of our heroine's unconventional approach to life in the first few paragraphs. Somewhere between Paris and London, April, 1889. I do not care for infants, and even if I did, I should not care for this one. It is decidedly moist, I protested to Stoker, thrusting the child towards him. He took it with good grace, and it emitted a sort of cooing sound. It seems to like you, I observed. I could not find fault with the child on that score. From his thirst for adventure to his avid intelligence, Stoker was an eminently likable man when he was in good spirits. The fact that he was superbly fit and partial to reciting Keats in moments of tenderness entered into my assessment of him not in the slightest. I am, after all, a woman of science. Stoker dandled the infant on his knee, and it regarded him solemnly, eyes wide and round. I use the word infant in its loosest interpretation. It had, in fact, been born some nine or ten months before, and possessed the appropriate number of teeth and skills for a child of that age. If we had permitted, it would have roamed the first-class compartment, where we were comfortably ensconced en route from Paris to London. The fact that the journey included a channel crossing via boat train was one of a dozen considerations in bringing along the child's nurse, a stout matron of something more than 40 years. She was a calmly capable woman who managed her charge with a combination of ruthless efficiency and dollops of real affection. I had taken the precaution of purchasing leather leads to attach to the infant to prevent it from getting loose. But Madame Laborde assured me she was entirely capable of running it to ground, should it escape. And now, please join me in welcoming Diana Rayborn. Hi, Diana. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me today.
1: Absolutely, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Before we start, I should mention that you were kind enough to send written answers to a short set of questions about Veronica's previous adventure, An Unexpected Peril. Listeners who'd like to learn more about that can find it by searching for your name at blog.cplesley.com. We'll go in a slightly different direction today, uh, beginning at the beginning, so to speak. So how did you come to write historical mysteries in the first place?
1: Um, I, you know, I, I, I wish there was some sort of, of really elegant story about this, but the truth is, um, I did it because my, my agent, um, basically forced me to, um, she, I had been trying to write and trying to get published for God, probably six or seven years at that point, And I was trying to write historical romance, um, and just was not getting any traction. I was getting kind of close to, to being published, but, just never quite got to the point of getting a contract. And I was trying a couple of different time periods and I was trying a couple of different voices and I was just, it was very scattershot and it didn't feel really authentic. And my agent said, you know what, I think you need to stop writing. Uh, She said, I think you need to stop writing for a year. And of course, you know, that's devastating when your agent says that. And I said, well, um, what am I supposed to do with my year? And she said, just read she said, you don't know who you are as a writer yet. And the best way to figure that out is to know who you are as a reader. And she said, so the best piece of advice I can give you is stop trying to force it, stop writing and go read. And I said, okay. And then what do I do at the end of the year? And she said, you'll know, which I thought was just a really, really nice way of basically blowing me off forever. Um, But at the end of a year, I actually knew exactly what I was supposed to be writing. I looked at the books that I had read uh, over those twelve months, and they were they weren't romances. They were all mystery in structure. They all had um, a historical setting. They all had kind of a, a very dynamic female protagonist. They all had a British sensibility, a very kind of dry British sense of humor to them. And I looked at the stack of books and said, oh, my God, that's a, that's a blueprint right there for what I need to be writing. And it took me another two years after that to fully develop and write um, my what ended up being my first published novel, which was Silent in the Grave. And when it was ready, I sent it back to my agent, to whom I had not spoken for three years now, um, and said, Okay, you know, I took your advice and this is what happened. And a week later she called me and said, This is it. You you did it. We're gonna sell this one. And it, it actually took her two years to place it. But when she did, it was um a three book hardcover deal and that book ended up getting, you know, nominated for multiple awards and, and kind of haven't looked back since.
0: What a wonderful story. That's really hardening. <laughs> <You know, laughs> it, it was
1: not wonderful living
0: it, but it was,
1: uh, you know, the the, the one thing I've, I really learned at the beginning of my career, because the, the first time I wrote a full novel, I was 23 and I was, um, I had just finished my first year of teaching. Um, I only taught for three years because I am I am not a good teacher. Um, it is It is a calling and a gift that I do not have. Um, But we had, you know, summer break rolled around and I had just finished rereading Jane Eyre. And, you know, with the hubris of a 23 year old said, I can do that. Um, So I sat down and I wrote this really sprawling 120,000 word novel in six weeks. And that was the first time I finished a a project. And I didn't actually get published for 14 years. Uh, I never stopped writing uh, sometimes there were very long gaps between projects that I was trying to do. But I wrote about seven or eight books in that time period. Um, dreadful books, dreadful books. Uh, but but I kept writing and I kept at it. So, if, you know, if there's anything I, I learned, it's that, you know, a writer writes
0: even when they're not being published.
1: <laughs> even when no one wants to pay for what you're writing, you are still a writer.
0: I totally agree. Um, so tell us a bit about Lady Julia Gray, uh, including how you developed her and whether her series will continue.
1: Uh, Julia's series is um, on indefinite hiatus, uh, which is a, a, a kind of a vague way of saying I technically own the characters. I can write more stories if I want. The issue would be um, finding a publisher or finding time because of the fact that I am under contract with, uh, Berkeley at Penguin Random House for the, um, the next series that I started, um, as well as some other projects. So, so uh, Julia is kind of on the back burner right now. She, uh, Julia is a, is, was just so much fun to write. She, uh, is a, is an aristocratic sleuth who kind of falls into detective work because her, um, not very much beloved husband basically drops dead in front of her, uh, on a ballroom floor. And, uh, she realizes uh, because it's brought to her attention that he was most likely murdered. And, um, you know, she, she decides not to let sleeping dogs lie. Um, And there were five, five books in that series and four novellas um, with my previous publisher. And they were, they were great fun to write. They're still available in digital. Um, And I, I loved Julia and her whole, she has a very enormous madcap, Completely madcap family. Uh, she's she's one of ten aristocratic siblings, uh, which you know, was, was just a joy to write. And I, I loved being in her world. Uh, but that, uh, that series, um, my previous publisher, uh, stopped publishing those. And then I wrote a few more projects for them and then I moved houses. So she's, she's, as I say, on hiatus and I never say never, but there are no plans right at the moment to, um, to revive any of her, her stories.
0: So I'll just mention in passing then that the, those some of those other projects are books set in the nineteen twenties, which is a bit of a shift from from Lady Julia. Um, and there's a Gothic novel somewhere in there too. Um, but where did Veronica Speedwell come from then as a character? Well, you know, I, because I was still under contract with my
1: previous publisher when they decided to um, stop the Julia books, I I had to write something else for them. Uh, and so we came up with the idea of these these 1920s adventures because I thought it, they wanted me to take a departure from the Victorian period. And I thought it would be fun. I, I just thought the, fun, the that the 20s would be a really intriguing time to write about. Um, and, and it absolutely was. So I kind of did an extended Julia universe because readers who are paying really close attention will see the ties between the 1920s books and the Julia books, which take place in the 1880s. Um, so they feature characters who are, you know, maybe nieces of Julia's or, um, you know, a friend of a friend's godson type of thing. So they, they all take place under this, uh, this kind of Julia umbrella, uh, in, I don't, maybe it's a Julia multiverse at this point. I'm not sure. Um, but, uh, then I decided to uh, leave my previous publisher and um, start something new. So I started the Veronica Speedwell uh, series with um, Berkeley. And uh, we are launching book seven, and I'm writing book eight, and I'm under contract for book nine. So Veronica has longer legs than Julia um, and is also a um, a Victorian series. She's a very different character than Julia Grey. They have some some superficial similarities. They're both, um, you know, kind of very determined women, um, you know, very uh, very smart, uh, very very inquisitive uh, to their own detriment, um, and they both have you know, dishy male sidekicks, because that's just fun to write. Um, But Veronica is a woman who actually has to work for a living. She's a lepidopterist. Um, She's a butterfly hunter. So she, um, which was considered to be a a pretty genteel occupation at the time. Uh, You could be ladylike and still hunt and sell butterflies for a living. It was, it was kind of the, the accepted occupation for women within the natural sciences. And um, Veronica was actually inspired by a real-life uh, lepidopterist by the name of Margaret Fountain, um, who spent a couple of decades roaming the world. She went to six different continents, uh, butterflying, assembling collections, uh, selling them on, and just having all sorts of fabulous adventures, um, not just butterfly adventures, but, um, amorous adventures. Margaret was, um, was, uh, uh, you know, a bit of a free spirit and she left some journals, which make for absolutely fantastic reading where she talks about, you know, kind of the, um, the, the love affairs and dalliances that she had along the way. And, you know, we, we don't tend to think of Victorian women as having the kinds of relationships that, Margaret had a lot of times, uh, for, uh, uh, you know, an English woman going, uh, and traveling the world. She had interracial relationships. She had premarital relationships and they were, they were fully physical, um, which, you know, kind of, always startles people when I tell it. Cause you know, you think Victorian woman, she's, you know, sitting around mending socks and, you know, uh, waiting to, to tithe in the, in the church plate on Sunday. You don't really think of them as having much of an interesting, um, and kind of, you know, scandalous, uh, existence, but, but Margaret did to a certain extent. And, you know, I was so, intrigued by her adventures and what she got up to and, and a lot of the other uh, Victorian lady explorers, because there were, there were quite a number of them. And the beauty of Victorians is anything they did, they wrote about they wrote letters home. They uh, wrote lecture series. They gave talks to people. They left um, memoirs and uh, you know memoranda about what they were doing. And so there's there's very little that they were getting up to that you can't find some great uh, piece of written evidence. Um, and so it's just this incredibly enjoyable rabbit hole to fall down. So I, I get to enjoy the research, and then I get to go and write some completely uh, you know off the. Adventure for Veronica. So I have a great deal of fun writing those books.
0: That's a really interesting observation. I was aware um, that the late Victorian era, in particular, was a time when women uh, went out and did far more than we think of them from that, you know, angel in the house sort of. Cliche, right? I hadn't realized that that Veronica's um, sexual attitudes were also from drawn from real life. I mean, that is very interesting. It's it's completely contradictory to whatever we thought.
1: Well, you know, that's one of the things that that um, also surprises people is is whenever I mention the fact that you know a lot of the views that we have about Victorian sexuality are based on this idealized version of what the middle class was supposed to aspire to. It's not reflective of the reality. Um, more than 50% of Victorian brides from the lower classes were actually pregnant on their wedding day. Well, you don't get that from being the angel on the heart. <laughs> that, that, you know, kind of, kind of speaks to uh, a, a slightly earthier uh, sort of lifestyle than, than we tend to credit them with. And if you look at the very upper echelon of society, um, apart from the Queen and Prince Albert, who were, you know, because Victoria and Albert were setting this this example of, of, you know, extreme domestic fidelity and, and you know, we've, we've got our, our masses of children and every, everything is, is orderly and neat and tidy and respectable. Apart from them, you have a, a, a really fairly loose um, aristocracy, You know, they're they're starting with their oldest son, the Prince of Wales, who ended up becoming um, King Edward VII. He and his friends engaged in country house parties that were basically mate swapping events. You know, they they had all these lovely little rules for how you were supposed to be able to find your mistress's room in the middle of the night. You know, that's the reason they put little name cards outside each door is so the gentleman would be able to find which room they were supposed to go to. And and there would be a very discreet bell that would ring in the morning before the servants all came up with the early morning tray of tea to wake everybody up. There would be a discreet little bell. Well, that bell meant, okay, gentlemen, time to get in your own beds. Go back to your own room now. Um, and, you know, that's how frequent this was and how commonplace it was. Um, You know, one, one Lord even walked into uh, his wife's, um, his wife's bedroom during one house party and found her with her lover and said, Madam, you have to be more careful. What if someone else had found you? Um, He didn't care about, you know, him finding her in flagrante he didn't want anybody else to do it you, you know there everybody who was in this social set knew the rules and knew how to conduct um, adultery in a way that was acceptable um, and they they absolutely did accept it there were there were ways you were supposed to be discreet about it, but so many of them were engaging in it um, and it, it just it makes for this really really fascinating um, kind of, of juxtaposition against what the the ideal is then for the middle class um where there's all this this you know very kind of stuffy moral rectitude and you know all the the hectoring from the pulpit and you know this this image we've got of of how morally upright and perfect victorians were and they really weren't they got up to all kinds of shenanigans
0: We could talk about that for the entire interview, because in fact, even with Victoria and Albert, I know from other interviews that it was mostly Albert. Uh, Victoria was actually quite um, different from what she's expected to be.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. She was she was very Hanoverian in her, in her, um, you know, tastes and enthusiasms. And it was, no, this was a holdover from Albert's, uh, childhood, which was wrecked by his mother's infidelity. And it was, it was, you know, um, when his mother was kind of thrown out of the family and he lost her, I think he was something like five years old and that, that had a, uh, an incredibly wounding effect on him. And so he was, he was very, very, you know, kind of precise and orderly in, in his views on how you were supposed to bestow your affections.
0: So let's get to uh, Victoria, uh, I'm sorry, Veronica's, you can see the whole Victoria thing is having an effect on me. Um, her, Veronica's partner in her investigations is the Honorable Revelstoke Templeton Vane, uh, who is known as Stoker. Um, tell us about him and what makes him a good complement for Victoria. Uh, Veronica, I'm, I'm going to do this the rest of the interview
1: it happens all the time don't worry (laughs) stoker is um stoker's just um bliss to write he every time I, I think um, that I, I haven't quite made him cranky enough I figure out a way to, to just you know rough him up a little further he's um, he is a, an aristocratic bad boy in that he um, ran away from home I think the first time is the age of 12 when when I have him running away from home and he literally joins the circus um, and he's he's dragged back home eventually and he he ends up going into the Navy and becoming a Navy Naval surgeon. And, um, he has just a, a very kind of rich life, uh, as a, a, you know, kind of several different incarnations of, of trying to find himself and, and, uh, you know, make himself happy within his, um, within the confines of his aristocratic upbringing, which, um, he, he rejects all the time. Um, and he, he ends up becoming a, a, a because of the fact that he has these skills as a naval surgeon and all these interests in natural history, he ends up uh, becoming a, um, uh, a very practical natural historian. He, um, his interest is in taxidermy. Stoker is, is existing at a time when the natural historians who were putting together museum collections kind of had to do everything. They would go out into the field. They would hunt a specimen. They would field dress it. They would bring it back. To the city, they would taxidermy it. They'd mount it properly, and then they would they would put it up for display. So they they did every part um, of the job. Stoker has kind of evolved from being the guy who would go out and actually kill something to thinking, you know what, we've done enough killing. Let's let's see what we can do with the trophies that we already have. So as um, as an artist, as a sculptor, as a historian, his job is to take really, really tragic um, trophy mounts and and kind of refurbish them, resculpt them, remount them, make them into to things of uh, of of beauty that that kind of give dignity back to these these animals and And they're used then um, for. Display purposes, but also for educational purposes, because Victorians were huge on the, you know, pay pay a a penny and go see this exhibit and learn all about this thing. And so that's that's kind of what uh, the work that he and Veronica are both engaged in is, um, you know, when they're not falling over dead bodies and unmasking murderers is uh, they're both um, employed by uh, an earl to take all the the various things that his family has acquired over the years and kind of uh, establish a museum for him. So right now they're in the cataloging phase and it's everything from coin collections to fossils to mummies. And so they're, they're working their way through this collection. And Stoker's main task is to deal with the natural history uh, specimens. And he, um, he's got uh, a fair bit of tragic baggage Um, But he also has a huge sentimental streak. He reads um, French romance novels. And he's um, he very much uh, he, he just is very, very soft hearted in spite of his incredibly gruff exterior. He's very cranky. And that's that's how I like him.
0: He is, and he quotes Keats and all kinds of things. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned Lowe's Moran. (laughs) Now, by the time we've gotten to book seven, um, Veronica and Stoker uh, have a fairly large cast of um, associates, and I'm afraid we're not going to get to all of them. But uh, Lord Rose Moran also has a sister, Cordelia, uh, who is important to Veronica and Stoker. Can you tell us a little bit about that household?
1: Cordelia has, uh, Lady Cordelia has taken over kind of the raising of her brother's children, not because he's unfit, but because he's incredibly forgetful. And, you know, between us, I'm not even sure he knows how many children he has. Um, and so she's, she's much more practical. Um, his, his wife is long dead. I killed her off way before book one. Um, and so Lady Cordelia kind of oversees the, the management of these children. Um, there's several of them between the ages of, oh, I think they're between 10 and 18 at this point. And, um, and they, they are, each and every one a handful. Um, they're, they're kind of brilliant and wayward. And uh, one of them is always in her room doing science experiments and blowing things up. And, uh, you know, one of the others is always attempting to mummify things because he's testing out theories. And so Cordelia kind of has to, to oversee all of this. She herself is, um, is a very gifted and intelligent woman. And she feels uh, a little bit um, underutilized. Um, as a surrogate mother for these children who do not belong to her. And she has introduced Veronica to um, an organization called the Hippolyta Club, um, which is a, a club for extraordinary women uh, of, of kind of significant accomplishment. Uh, It's also known uh, familiarly as the Curiosity Club. And so it's a women's only club and it's for explorers and mathematicians and, uh, you know, women who are just doing very interesting and unusual things, largely because of the fact that the Male clubs at this time would never have accepted them in. Um, the Royal Geographic Society at this point was not admitting female explorers. Um, you know, so there were um, mathematical organizations that were not allowing women in. And so if you wanted to really be recognized for your accomplishments and and not have to deal with all the the hassle of you know kind of dealing with the male ego, I the Hippolyta Club is the place for you, um, and it is certainly the place for Cordelia. So uh, she has introduced Veronica there, and um, Veronica has become a member. And that's that's sort of their hideaway from the world when the rest of it all gets to be too much. And and gentlemen are absolutely not permitted inside, um, except for uh, you know one little reception room where they're allowed to come in, but under sufferance. No one really wants the men to come
0: in. <laughs> Let's get to the current book now. Uh, the scene I read at the uh in the introduction, uh, is taking place as Veronica and Stoker are returning to London. Um, they've come from the Alpenwald, which is the—it's not the location of the last book, but it's—it's it's associated with the last book. And their feet have barely touched British soil, and they get a summons from Sir Hugo Montgomery. Uh, who is he, and what does he want from them?
1: Sir Hugo Montgomery is their Sometime ally and sometime enemy. He is um, the head of Special Branch at Scotland Yard, um, which uh, is a real position, but he is very much a fictitious person. Um, Special Branch at the time was tasked with a lot of different things, but one of their primary responsibilities is the safety and security of the royal family. And so um, Veronica and Stoker have a, a Kind of loose connection on the periphery of the royal family they they occasionally meet members in a sort of roundabout way and um, occasionally are involved in very delicate situations that could, um, you know, if there's something that could bring in uh, a bit of scandal and they need someone trustworthy to handle it, uh, a lot of times they'll rely on Veronica and Stoker to do it. In this case, it's not official business that has Sir Hugo calling them in. It is um, it's much more uh, kind of a a personal favor to him. Um, So he uh, he kind of prevails upon their their better nature and Veronica's, you know, kind of incessant curiosity, uh, because she never can resist a mystery to uh, to see if he can get them to help him out uh, with a delicate situation
0: um, of his own. And what is it specifically that he wants them to do?
1: They are um, asked to go to um, Hathaway Hall, which is um, a, a mansion I created on the Devon Moores, um, which that's just an homage to Hound of the Baskervilles, which was the first um, proper grown up mystery that I ever read. Uh, I think when I was a kid, there were these—I um, don't even know if they still publish them anymore—great illustrated classics, uh, which were abridged versions um, for children. And uh, the very first one that I ever read, I think I was about six, was uh, *Hound of the Baskervilles*, and I absolutely adored it. And it's still my favorite in the um, Sherlock canon. So I—I I decided to, you know, give Veronica a little—a um, little trip to the Devon Moors, uh, just out of my love for that book. Um, They are asked to go there because the heir to Hathaway Hall uh, died a number of years before but has apparently um, appeared once more, um, and, uh, is looking to establish a claim to the estate. And because Veronica may have met him in the past, Sir Hugo is hoping that she might be able to help him identify whether or not this, uh, young man is actually who he purports to be. Um, and the connection for him is that the young man's sister is his goddaughter. And so he's he's involved on a very personal level um, in something that really would not be significant enough to draw his attention if it wasn't for the fact that he's looking out for his goddaughter, um, who is um, kind of a a, an intriguing young woman in her own right.
0: She certainly is, and uh, I hope that we'll talk about her in just a little bit. Uh, I guess we should probably not say any more about why Sir Hugo thinks that Veronica can identify Jonathan Hathaway because that would the whole point of the. Well, one point of the book is is to reveal the answer to that question. So, let's uh, let's move them forward uh, to Hathaway Hall. What do they find when they get there, uh, Veronica and Stoker? Uh, I'm asking about the family in residence in particular.
1: Well, Hathaway Hall is um, it. it you know when when these landed estates change hands a lot of times it's an opportunity for the next generation to kind of remake it in their image and so you have that that tension where we are between generations because there's the older uh, Lady Hathaway, who is the grandmother of the current incumbent, um, who is there with his new wife, who is new money um, and coming in. And so there's this this friction from uh, old money versus new money, you know, uh, the the kind of the, the previous reign versus uh, the the newcomer who wants to kind of uh, make everything modern and, you know, install flushing toilets and, and you know, that sort of thing uh, versus the people who were happy with you know chamber pots and uh 800 maids running up and down the stairs um and so there the family is is kind of divided on whether or not um the young man who has turned up is in fact uh the lost heir jonathan hathaway and and you know then the questions start to arise what does that mean for the rest of the family um does he get a share of the inheritance does the estate belong to him um and and so those are that creates a whole new set of tension, uh, you know, for for everybody involved.
0: Do you want to talk about what the evidence is for and against at the very beginning of the story? Well, the, the
1: evidence is, is based on uh, physical resemblance. And, uh, you know, the, the interesting uh, thing is that Jonathan, Jonathan in air quotes, um, because we don't know at this point if he is or is not Jonathan, is um, suffering from amnesia and does not actually make a claim. He has turned up, you know, kind of unwell and uh, in a state of collapse, at the gates of the estate, and it, it's when the family bring him in that they look at him and say, "Oh, good heavens! This must be Jonathan." And so, half the family thinks he is, half the family thinks he isn't, and he's very much keeping his mouth closed on the subject because of the fact that you know this is this is this is not something he knows for sure. Um, so he's kind of relying on them to tell him. So, uh, it, Veronica and Stoker enter at a point when there's there's kind of an interesting. Uh, uh crossroads uh you know between w- which path are they going to take you know are they are they going to to have to pursue this in the courts are they going to go looking for further evidence and you know sir hugo has sent them in um under a cover story so that the family don't even realize why they're there. So they're sleuthing very much um, you know, kind of in the shadows and and uh, surreptitiously trying to figure out the truth um because Sir Hugo thinks it's probably a good idea not to set the cat amongst the pigeons just yet, but to try to get an answer um and quietly resolve everything. Because of course this would be a tremendous scandal as it already had been. There there were cases um the the most famous one being the Arthur Orton case um, where, uh, you know, a a butcher from Australia rolled up and, and suddenly presented himself as the long lost heir to a baronetcy and a fortune. And it ended up uh, dragging through the courts and becoming this massive story. And anyone who actually, you know, cares about, Anyone the way that Sir Hugo cares about this family doesn't want to see them dragged through the press, dragged through the courts. And so his his thought is, let's be let's be very discreet about all of this and let's, you know, just kind of handle it in a in a very quiet uh, and respectable and dignified way. So Veronica and Stoker appear under the guise of um, kind of evaluating uh, some natural history trophies there, uh, for the, um, the collection, uh, that they acquire for in London. And so the idea is that they're going to be looking at, um, you know, kind of some unusual trophies, uh, because the the current holder of Hathaway Hall is looking to liquidate and get rid of all the dusty things that his, uh, his father and grandfather have collected. So, uh, it's a chance for Stoker to go poke around and, you know, uh, inspect the, the, rare animals that he doesn't usually get to see. So he has one of his little uh, fanboy moments where he gets to see a particularly rare animal that he's enamored with. And, um, you know, Veronica gets to inspect the local butterfly life um, while they're investigating this mystery.
0: As you mentioned, the daughter of the family, uh, whose name is Euphemia, she's known as Effie, uh, is... Not a classic Victorian maiden in the cliched sense either. She has an interest in astronomy, in fact, uh, which creates a bond between her and Veronica. Where does Effie's interest come from and what is her goal in life?
1: Effie's interest comes from her grandfather, um, who built an observatory in their home in order to... you know, kind of extend his studies. You know, this is, this is one of the things that uh, for Victorians kind of marked uh, a gentleman um, was the ability to uh, have an interest or a pursuit that you could put money into um, and, and just enjoy and kind of further your knowledge of, and uh, you know, some gentlemen were just dilettantes and they just dabbled in a few things, but some of them actually, you know, uh, Further the cause of scholarship. And so Effie's grandfather has been um, a, a, an astronomy scholar and has left her his equipment and his notebooks and his observatory. Unfortunately for Effie, um, this kind of comes into direct conflict um, with her brother's wife, uh, and what she believes a proper young Victorian woman should do, because, uh, again, it's the, the collision of old money versus new money. And, you know, they're there. We see this a lot in Victorian um manners manuals and etiquette guides you see well this is how you're supposed to behave well the reason they were writing so many of those guides is not because everyone behaved that way it's because too many people didn't they had to put these guides out because suddenly you had a, a, a really enormous middle class that hadn't been trained to these things and wanted to know okay you know where are just we the oyster fork uh, fork go you know what what do you do with um you know do you eat grapes with with you know, do you use the grape scissors under these circumstances or how do you address a bishop? And so all these these books and guides are being written and they're being, you know, devoured by people who are trying desperately to be upwardly mobile and to, to make it seem as if they've always had this kind of polish. And in the case of... Uh, euphemia or Effie, you know, she can be as eccentric as she wants because she's got old money. She's got this, this, uh, this blue blood behind her. Um, unfortunately the money is almost entirely gone. So her brother marries a young woman with a great deal of cash who has these, these kind of very strict, narrow ideas about propriety and how you should behave and how you should conduct yourself and running around, you know, in muddy skirts, wearing, men's brogues and spending all hours of the night up with your telescope that those just don't fit into um, into her idea of how Effie should be conducting herself. And so her, her way of dealing with Effie is just, you know, kind of very much a tough love uh, sort of an approach, which is we need to just clear it all out. You, you need to settle down and get married. Um, is is her philosophy. You know, she's very much the sort of woman who would have put the, the angel of the hearth kind of, um, at the forefront of, uh, her own ambitions. Um, and, and anything that deviates from that is just kind of dangerous and suspect to her. And, you know, so to her mind, Effie is, is just kind of wayward and incorrigible. But of course, Effie is a, um, a sister in spirit to Veronica who, uh, completely understands why she's enamored of something and passionate about it and
0: wants to pursue it. So I think we've gone about as far into the story as we can go without uh, depriving readers of the fun of, you know, know. <laughs> finding the whole thing out for themselves. No spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> yeah. And exactly. I want to assure them that it is a great deal of fun. Uh, frankly, the whole series is wonderful. I would suggest people actually start at the beginning and read through because things do develop over time and you will have much better. You, you won't have spoiled the, the, the early books if you start with them. Uh, what would you like people to take away from an impossible imposter and its predecessors?
1: I want them to have fun. Um, you know, my—I absolutely, to me, one of the, the the greatest joys is when a reader, you know, contacts me and says, "I was going through a really horrible divorce, and I found your books, and they gave me a little bit of an escape." Or I took your books to chemo, or you know, I've got newborn twins, and they don't sleep, and sometimes I just take ten minutes and read. Uh, Those kinds of messages thrill me to no end. And, you know, as every writer is also a reader. And as a reader, I know how much, particularly during the pandemic, it has meant to me to be able to escape just for a little while and say, okay, you know what? For the next half an hour, I'm not going to worry about anything. I'm just going to go to this world and I'm going to be with these characters and I'm just going to enjoy that time. And to, to be able to do that for anyone else, I I think is just a a tremendous uh, gift for me. So I'm, I'm delighted if anybody gets entertainment or escape uh, from what they've read, fabulous. That's, that's, the most I can hope for.
0: When we uh, did our blog Q&A in 2021, you mentioned that you were working on a contemporary novel that was also scheduled to release this year. Is that actually happening, or have you been caught up in Veronica the whole time?
1: Oh, no, it's actually happening. It will be out in September. Um, It is the story of four female assassins who are 60 years old on the cusp of retirement and who have to band together to take out the organization they work for when the organization targets them. And uh, I have had more fun writing that book than anything I have ever done. I love it with my whole heart. Um, It's out in September and it's called Killers of a Certain
0: Age. I love the title. So
1: what are you working on now? I can't take credit for the title. I cannot. I wish I could. But the vice president of PR for the company is the one who actually thought of the title when the rest of us were banging our heads together. He just dropped it out there and we were like, well, you're brilliant. Um, Yeah, I love, love, love the title. Right now I am writing Veronica number eight. All
0: right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Diana Rayburn about An Impossible Imposter. Find out more about her at www.dianarayburn.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Network. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.